with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, on this beautiful winter's day, we just are so grateful that we can gather as your people in this warm place, recognizing that the warmth doesn't come always from the heating system, that the warmth comes from the reality of your love for us and the person and work of Jesus. I ask that as we look at this passage in Peter's letter to the early church, that you would continue to warm our hearts to the reality of that grace and truth. And Lord, it would show through our lives as it did in that first church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you were to sit at my dinner table in the late 70s, you would learn quickly that my father had a great tendency to be a great authority on subjects which he had knew nothing about. <laughs> Ten years earlier, I thought my dad knew everything. I mean, he was my hero. It was phenomenal, and it was just great. But he didn't know anything about art, and all of a sudden, we'd talk about Van Gogh, and he would start spouting things about Van Gogh, and I would look at him and say, is that really the case? My mom, not wanting to put up with it, said, you don't know what you're talking about. Be quiet, Wesley. Mm -hmm. Dick Lucas says some pastors approach texts of Scripture like my dad approached certain subjects as well. Uses the facts the way a drunk uses a lamppost more for support than illumination. <laughs> as we come to this new section of Peter's letter, we realize that a similar temptation arises for the preacher. It would be so easy for me to make this a passage about civil disobedience. All I would need to do is to bring out the great texts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who disobeyed. The Egyptian midwives who disobeyed out of a love for God. For Daniel who faithfully refused to follow legislation who, who, that prohibited him from prayer to the Most High. I could use Peter and John himself, who stood defiant in the face of authorities when they stopped, they ordered them to stop preaching, and they continued to do so. And I could do that, and there are a lot of churches out there who do do that and are very happy to have such sermons like that, where issues of social justice form the sole substance of their sermons. The problem, of course, in doing this kind of thing with this text, it's absolutely silent on, ad, on anything advocating civil disobedience. In fact, Peter does have to say is quite different this morning. Peter's word is nothing short of an unabashed emphasis on civil obedience, even when the authorities are ungodly. So... Many pastors don't touch this text. It was kind of, you know, not easy to find a lot of sermons on this text that I could read and study. Thank God for other commentaries. But the reality is a lot of people don't touch it. And it leaves the congregation leaning up against the post like a drunken man. And the result, Peter's voice is silenced. The Holy Spirit doesn't have any light to shine upon us, and the church is never taught to think clearly about what kind of response do we have to a watching world. 
But here at Christ Church, we're here to preach the full counsel of the Word of God. But you know, the focus is not only on the preacher, it's also on the listeners, too. Interestingly, people in the pew must fight that temptation, too. For there always are those who would deconstruct the Bible's message and its call for godly conduct. For example, some would take this text in front of us here this morning from the far right and would take the law into their own hands and under the banner of the Christian flag, storm the Capitol. There's others on the far left who would take the force of the text and turn it on ahead to mean that Christ's work is really only manifested when it's freeing the oppressed. So how should we proceed? What are we to do? Well, Peter tells us that there's a teaching that's his intention, number one. He gives us instruction. And three, he gives us an example to follow. All right? We see Peter's intention. We see his instruction. And then an example to follow. So let's look at this, shall we? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week, Sean preached on verses 11 and 12. Peter's taking a turn here to the imperatives of his letter. Because of the good news of the gospel, because we're good news people, therefore, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, what does that conduct look like? Here we go. All right. This is honorable living. So first we see Peter's intention. Um, a quick glance at those verses, Peter's intent, he really is only looking at these relationships that are most important to these churches in chapter 1. To the chosen elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and therefore. He's not doing an exhaustive writing on marriage and parenting. He's going to do a little bit of that. We'll talk about that next week. But he doesn't even mention parenting in this. His tension is highly specific and is limited in scope. He desires to provide the examples of good works done mostly likely by those who are being mistreated by the culture. And as we will see, there are good works to be done even when the rulers are less inclined to return good works to them. Secondly, we see Peter's instruction. If there was one word that sums this all up, it would be that word submission. It's the word that unfolds what Peter is looking for when he writes about honorable conduct in good deeds. And we can see this in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. This, for our American ears, is hard. It's countercultural as we can get. Yet for Peter, the good and honorable work for the Christian community is nothing if it is not submission to authority. Now, let's, let's, let's add a qualifier here, okay, because I know where you're going with this, all right? True, Peter appears to be arguing that submission is the preeminent mark of Christian grace and goodness. That's true. 
uh, does the sum of substance of one's Christian life before a watching world come down to some blind adherence to a principle called submission? Absolutely not. I named before it times in the scripture where people were forbade to do what God explicitly commands, and what did they do? They obeyed God rather than man, right? But submission, you see, defines the Christian's way because being like the Savior is our goal. The gravitational pull of this part of the lever, letter, excuse me, is the meekness and submissiveness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The one we are to imitate stands in the middle of it all. So therefore, we're not operating out of some blind adherence to a rigid principle, but rather out of a love for the one with whom we have a relationship with. At the end of the day, Christians willingly submit themselves to people in authority because we desire our lives to be pleasing to someone, not something. So keeping that important point in mind, let us look at the instructions given to the first two of these relationships, and next week we'll look at the third relationship, which is husband and wife, with human institutions and masters and or bosses, if you will. So first, this is submission to those in political office. Peter writes in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. The extent and the force of Peter's words on this point only grow in stature when one considers that the emperor in Peter's day was Nero, who was using Christians as lampposts in the evening in Rome, slathering them with oil and lighting them on fire. Do I have your attention? Nero led the great persecution against Christians. As a matter of fact, it's under Nero that Peter was killed. Other authorities during this time were the governors Pontius Pilate and Felix. We know Pontius Pilate, you know, sentenced our Lord Jesus to death. Felix played with his power in the case of Paul. Each of them were callous, cruel, and friendless to the reality of the Christian faith. And yet Peter tells us to submit to such rulers. Why? Verse 15 for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Our motivation for our day-to-day lives rests on submission to the authorities, the strongest apologetic against the views that Christians are up to no good. Because there's always people who think we're up to no good. It, certainly in the first century, they took Jesus's own Simon the Zealot, and when the Zealots went and rebelled militarily against the Roman Empire, who do you think they blamed? All the Christians, because he was one of the disciples. You know, in regard to morality, perhaps the word spread about that guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who was in an incestuous relationship. They're all like that, you know. Whenever the non-believing world 
sees the news sites on the web, is confronted with Christian individuals or Christian leaders acting badly, the world assumes that all Christians are like them. Our goodness and our blessing in our community is our greatest apologetic for the good news of Jesus. Being a blessing to our community silences false accusations. We ought to be known for throwing ourselves into being a blessing, bringing God's kingdom here on this earth. Submission is the great apologetic for the good news of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't come overnight. It usually comes over time. It certainly did for Peter. I mean, you remember Peter, the Garden of Gethsemane, gets awakened, draws his sword, lops off Malchus's ear. Years later, as an older and wiser man, Peter says to us, in essence, I put my sword away. God has given me a sword, which is the word of God, which is cut to the bone and marrow in the harshest of authorities. Ephesians 6 and 17, let us, the church, keep their physical sword sheathed. Peter's learned his lesson, and he's now free to submit. And so, therefore, in verse 16, he continues that thought. Live as people who are free, even though it doesn't feel like it. You're free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. In other words, love the church of God. Fear God, honor Nero. Those four short sentences together rise in distinction, right? Honor everyone, next step. Love the brothers and sisters, next step. Fear God, next step. Honor the emperor. Show proper respect for all rulers. That's what we should be known for. Secondly, we submit to those who are in authority over us in the workplace. He moves on to give instructions to that second set of relationships, writing, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For those of us who live in the United States, you can't help hear such language, and you're thinking servants, slaves. We think of the English-American slave trade. And that awful, horrific commitment that our country had for the better part of 200 years. And at first glance, these verses appear kind of inappropriate in that context. They seem to accept the very question that we have come now to disdain. And we ask out loud, well, why doesn't Peter speak against that institution right now? You know, why doesn't the Bible speak out against slavery? Well, my friends, it does. God never permits his people to use slavery as a means of permanent exploitation. Generation after generation of their children. In actual fact, the Bible condemns slavery in no uncertain terms. You look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. You will see the Apostle Paul making a list of activities that are contrary to sound doctrine. Behavior that is against the glorious gospel. 
from one activity is the noun in verse 10 of that uh, first Timothy one is translated enslavers. It refers to a person who would take a person captive in order to sell them to another. Paul condemns this as contrary to sound doctrine and against the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear on the English and American slave trade. It's against it. It abhors it. It's a sin. It's representable. It's reprehensible. In fact, Paul insists that all those who practice it are ungodly, unholy, and profane. So interestingly, the, the, the word that Peter uses here for servants comes from the Greek genre of household terms. It's more like indentured servanthood. It's a kind of career, you know. Um, there are some distinctions from its uh, English and American slave trade for certain. In the ancient Roman world, there were three classes of people. You had Roman citizens who had full rights and protections under the law. You had freedmen who had restricted protection, but they still enjoyed a great deal of autonomy. And then you had servants, the servant class. These were men and women largely employed as managers and workers in households. They ran the agrarian workplace. And this servant class is the one he's writing to and about at this point in the letter. So while we bring slavery to this text, Peter is writing about something with significant differences. A closer modern-day parallel in our day would be a person who gets appointed to West Point, and they owe Uncle Sam five to six years of their lives. You talk to anyone in the Army, it, sometimes it feels like you have an unjust leader underneath you, right? You're a, you're a servant as an officer to your, your authorities. That's kind of what it's like. And so these servants are to be subject to their masters with all respect, even to those who are unjust. That word in the Greek could also be translated crooked, uh, corrupt, cheaters. These are the type of people who cook the books, and you're working for them. Do you have an employer like that, Peter says? Well, do them all the good you can, even if it leads to suffering. For an example of what such service might look like, look like without compromising personal integrity would be the way Joseph honored Potiphar. He did Potiphar good all the days of his life, and we're told that God was with him. The promises of God's presence in the midst of suffering is there for us as well. We're involved in a great work when we do good while suffering, even under our corrupt employer. Peter writes in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Did you catch the repeating word gracious there? When you endure unjust hardship, you're doing a gracious thing. And this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Your goodness displayed true graciousness to the world. 
And here we stumble upon something which is at the very core of Peter's mind. Later on in the letter, chapter 5, verse 12, Peter will say, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, the true grace of God is revealed in the world when Christians who are treated unjustly nevertheless act honorably and good. This is what the world needs to see of us. Our submission is not only within the will of God, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And in submission, you gain God's smile. Finally, who can do that? How do we live like that? Well, Peter shows us because we have an example. For this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. In Paradise Lost, Milton depicts the moment God's son stood on the rim of the universe. Seeing our need for a savior, he said to the father, I will go. So the eternal word of God took on flesh. And this one, Jesus, the one who possesses all authority and all power, this is the one who humbled himself and became a servant. Peter, knowing just how difficult our sojourning world can be and will be, says, in essence, I have an example for you to imitate. I have an exile for you to follow. He's the one who flung the stars into space. This one shall lead you. We are to imitate the one of whom Peter says, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Flowing through that passage is the great suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. We heard part of that read in our passage in the gospel reading of Matthew 12. And Peter also here in quoting verses 21 through 24, is alluding to Isaiah 53. And that's an important connection. Because Isaiah's servant truly is exalted, humiliated upon the cross, suffering, and then exalted again. The contrast between exaltation and humiliation in Isaiah is clear. It's the theological theme of the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah. The entire poem, there are many transgressors, but one servant. He's the one who has come from on high to deliver his people. And the literary style of Isaiah provides for us further insight into the meaning of this passage that Peter is quoting. Peter adopts this passage, makes the relationship clear. So in Peter's words, the king of glory enters into a state of suffering. We can almost see Jesus standing before Pilate, not reviling in return. 
when he suffers at the hands of the officer who flogged him and beat him, he did not threaten in return. How did he do that? Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. With Peter's dependence on Isaiah now in place, we're ready to assert the humility of Christ. His own earthly season of suffering is the gravitational pull of this part of the letter. And as such, we've moved past the thing to the person of our Lord and Savior. Friends, we submit to ungodly authorities of a desire to please and to emulate his life. Therefore, we are now ready to put this language of commitment and submission into its proper context, which is you can only do this as we're in a personal relationship with this Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we can cease being the sheep of Isaiah's chapter. We can be exalted with Christ. We can live in righteousness. Our wounds can be healed. And in him, we can trust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And so in Jesus, we will have the strength we need to walk in this world, for God will be our shepherd and the overseer. Oh, wait, the bishop of our souls. The word overseer is episkopos. Mark Engel's a great bishop. But even Bishop Mark would tell you he can't hold a candle to the bishop of our souls. Jesus will shepherd us. Get off the lamppost. Look at the light for our practical day-to-day lives. The American political system can't hold the Christian worldview, my friends. Some of you are Democrats. Some of you are Republicans. Some of you are independents. Welcome. We're glad you're here. All right? You hear us pray it in midday prayer. May our hopes for heaven, may our hopes for political change be outstretched by the hope of heaven. That... We have great hope in this kingdom, all right? We have more rights as Americans right now than Peter ever had under Nero. Go ahead. Write all the letters to your congressman you want. I think it's great. Super. But our hope is a greater hope. Secondly, your authority at work. The people who have authority over you. Do them good, remembering our Lord, who did not revile in return, suffered for us. And as we do so, we can recognize he is with us. Our students, I know you got bad teachers. We all have bad teachers. We all know what it's like to sit under mean teachers that are just awful Do them good. Be a blessing. God put you in that classroom for a purpose, just like he put your family with that particular address in that neighborhood. Let us be about being the blessing we're called to be, letting the illumination of God's word light our path from this time forth to the day he calls us home. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you that. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a suffering servant and king. So having come to the center of this letter with Jesus' example before us, we pray you would help us to live in such a way 
as pleases you. May all our submissiveness be rooted in love for you. May all our obedience to these verses stem for our desire to grow in our relationship with you and for pleasing you is all we really desire to do. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.